Hey everybody, welcome to the 124th episode of the JDO Show. I am your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show we have Jeff Jackson. Jeff is the author of Destroy All Monsters, which recently came out from FSG Originals. He is also the author of Mira Corpora, one of my favorite books of all time, and its companion piece, Novi Sad. Jeff is a playwright, a musician, and an author, and an all-around really cool guy who thinks pretty deeply about this kind of stuff. It's been really cool to see the kind of praise that Destroy All Monsters has been getting. It's been covered in the New York Times and the Washington Post and on every social media feed that uh, I'm subscribed to. I enjoyed it a lot. Jeff and I have a really cool conversation here. If I can brag a little bit, he sent me an email afterwards saying that this conversation had his head spinning a day later, which I think is good. I I hope that that's from uh, the fact that it was really thought-provoking and not because most of the time I am an incoherent ass. Anyway, I uh, I do I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. I always have fun talking to Jeff. I would do it for for not podcast related reasons. Um, pick up his book, Destroy All Monsters. It really is good. I mean, we get into I guess a little bit later in the podcast we get a little bit into spoiler territory. But if you haven't read it, go read it first and then come back and listen to this. Unless you don't mind a little light spoilage, but as Jeff mentions kind of early on in the talk, it's a really hard book to spoil. So without further ado, please do enjoy this 124th episode of the JDO Show with Jeff Jackson. And it's thinking, and it has thought. All right. Hey, Jeff, thank you for uh, coming on the JDO Show. Hey, it's great to be here. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, same here, same here. So Destroy All Monsters came out... A few months ago? What was the exact date? I do my research here. October 16th it came out. My little brother's birthday. Um, So, so far it seemed to have gotten a really, really great uh, reception. You want to talk a little bit about what that experience has been like? And then we'll talk about uh, the book. Yeah, it's been, um, it, it has, so far it has had a great reception. It's been a little discombobulating for a writer coming from a small press um, to get reviews in places like the Washington Post and the LA Times and the New York Times and Mm -hmm. NPR. Um, It's been really, yeah, it's been really nice. And they've been very thoughtful, generous reads. And it's it's a challenging book. And it's been great that it feels like the reviewers have been, um, I don't know, really sensitive and perceptive about the book. And I've been really fortunate with that. That's and awesome. yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, like being in Charlotte, North Carolina, not a very literary town, let's say, mm-hmm. um, while, right, all this, right. while all this is happening, it does sort of feel, uh, I do feel a little disconnected from it all and maybe in a good way, actually. Mm-hmm. So it has have... a number on my head the way it might've been if I were like living in New York, say. Sure. Yeah. Do you think that it's going to affect you going forward? Because uh, now that you've now that the book seems to be pretty well received, um, 
You know, actually, now that I think about it, I'm asking that question and it's like, oh yeah, that's a great idea, dude. Put into Jeff's head this idea that now he needs to be psyched out because this book is doing well. No, no, no. It actually is. I'd say say it's on the opposite because it's actually reinforced everything I thought about this book. Cool. Which is that that it's not too weird that there's an audience for it and that readers would like it because it took – I mean when I initially showed this book to my original agent – she dropped me after she read it. No way, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the initial reaction was that she was like, this is, I'm not going to send this out. Because it you... was too violent or too weird or what was the reason? She just didn't like, no, she just didn't like it. She, she said this represents, uh, it was just, she just didn't like it. It just was not for her and she just didn't see this as my next book. And so... Um, we parted ways and it took me almost a year to find another agent. Mm. And then it took, um, and then there were over 30 rejections before FSG actually came back around and got it. Oh, wow. That, that so I've been, so I've been, I've been hearing so much about this book that it's too weird, that there isn't an audience, it's too challenging, all these sort of different things. So actually the sort of the success of it is just sort of emboldened me to want to do even stranger things. Oh, that's so good to hear because coming from a perspective of a person who may be a little bit uh, weird, I'll cop to that. I, I honest, and this is, this isn't a slam. It's, I just, I didn't really think it was that weird of a book either. I mean, well, I mean, I think I, one of my favorite interviews actually was um, was at LitHub, where the first question was, they said, this book is both your most accessible and your most experimental book. Agree or disagree? And I was like, yes, agree, strongly agree. And I think that like, that's exactly right. Like, it's sort of been Trojan horsed mm-hmm. to be to to be to meet the reader where they are and to be like a really propulsive story. Sure. Um, but I think also at some of like the deeper levels of the book, it's actually weirder than Miracorpora or Novi Sad. And in fact, when the book was bought, it was just bought based on the A side. Hmm. Interesting. And, and I had, I talked the publisher into adding the B side. Hmm. Now what, now I'm trying to kind of pull that apart as it being more, I know formally it's probably a bit more experimental. Um, I'm thinking maybe in terms of I mean, you go more into the sort of like to my to my mind, this might be way off track from what we're talking about right now, but to my mind, each of your books from Mira Corpora to Novisad to this one, you seem to be getting uh more and more focused on um architecture and its decay, right? It seems like every book gets more and more there, there are a bunch of passages in Destroy All Monsters that deal with kind of characters walking through abandoned ruins. Um, and it feels like, and it's been a while since I've read Miracorpora, so I could be off base on this, but it seems to me that that was probably more um, about like the body, obviously. Like it was more about the, the, the corporeal um, degradation, if you will. And then Novi Sad, and then this one seemed to be much more about characters' um, environments falling apart around them. Why? Well, uh, there's a there's a lot of broken down buildings in Miracle for it too, but I think because it's written in the first person, uh-huh, uh-huh. that's a little less foregrounded. So maybe it's sort of like with each of these three books, the camera pulls back a little bit further. Yeah, yeah. That's a so fair, that you're. Yeah. 
so that you're noticing the architecture a little bit more. But there's also like there's I mean industrial monsters. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of, of the woods and forests and things like that too. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot. There is a lot of lovingly kind of rendered. You know, I'm thinking one of my favorite passages in the book is when a character is walking through this sort of abandoned rock hall, right? And it's just it's very. Um, I was reading it, I think, along the same time that I was. I had started reading Mark Fisher's work. Um, oh yeah, his stuff is great. Yeah, and so Mark Fisher talks. Of, obviously, he you know writes a lot about, wrote rather a lot about uh, music, but he also wrote a lot about this concept called hauntology, right? Which is, I believe, from Derrida, and it's this kind of hauntology is the feeling of nostalgia for a future that will never happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's. I think it partly comes, he's actually partially, partly taking the uh, term, at least in terms of musical, from Simon Reynolds. Oh, yes, who yes. Who wrote yes. an article for The Wire about hauntology and about this uh, electronic music label called Ghostbox. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think he and Mark Fisher were both sort of like obsessed with this idea, which they, or Simon Reynolds at least sort of traces back first to sort of the early Boards of Canada records and sort of goes from there. But yeah, it's definitely infused with Derrida and all that stuff. And I kind of, I, well, the stuff that I read with, um, interestingly enough, this is probably just fresh on my mind because I was listening to Burial this morning. Oh, a, yes. It was a, it was an oddly cloudy day in El Paso. And whenever it's cloudy, I'm like, it's time to throw in Burial. Um, but I've, I've gone down the Burial wormhole recently too. It's great stuff, right? Um okay. A kind of interesting thing, a little tidbit, neither here nor there, but I, the the software that he used, at least on his earlier albums, um, he didn't use kind of computer, I guess, I'm going to mess this up, kind of sequencers, right? So mm-hmm. basically what, the, what that did was that every once in a while his beats would be slightly off and it added this kind of like organic feel to this techno music. I just thought that, that was pretty cool because it was like the program meant that he had to I guess record himself live hitting a button in order to oh, make it work. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Like, um, totally. I get yeah. it. Yeah, no, that's great. But anyway, yeah, that that hauntology stuff. Um, I don't know why, but like that felt that in Destroy All Monsters too. There's sure. this, this kind of like a melancholy thing, but it's melancholy for not just sort of you know these days when you know the, these kind of young people who who used to be you know so young and and artsy and into the music, but also just, just this kind of like, there is this destruction of a future because of the nature, I guess, of the, of the, vi- is it, it's not really ever clear why what's happening is happening. Right. I mean, characters have the different characters in the book have different opinions mm-hmm. about why it's happening, mm-hmm. but the book isn't positing a solution. There's just different, they're just different theories being bandied about. Right. Right. Have you, did you ever feel like, that you wanted to give an answer? Or did you know from the beginning, you're like, oh no, that's not the way I'm going with this? Uh, I knew pretty early on that wasn't the way I was going with it. Like I wasn't even sure there is an answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are, I mean, it's just sort of like with a lot of violence in society, there's there's a lot of theories floating around, but it's not like everyone, you know, drank this fluoridated water and suddenly that's what caused them to <laughs> you know, pick up an AK. Um, so in that sense, I, I definitely didn't, because then it becomes sort of also a traditional, a more traditional somehow sci-fi mystery or something. Right, um, right. 
And I just wanted to keep the possibilities in play in, in a way that felt just more real to me. Mm-hmm. Well, and it is more real, too, because like you said, I mean, real gun violence, there's tons of reasons. There's never one kind of thing. Something that I, I notice on social media, and it is kind of sad how it's become just sort of, it seems like another thing that happens during a week. But after there will be some sort of mass shooting, you can. it's almost like... Uh, it is like a song being played at a certain point that you've heard before because everybody comes in to play their part and it's like, okay, it's probably not that. It's probably not that. No, we probably don't need more guns. No, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just this kind of on and on. But I sort of asked that question because um, you and I were talking a bit about um, how authors uh, shouldn't ne- maybe necessarily do that and by do that i mean have this kind of authorial um you know top down this is what a book is about kind of thing i i'm very indelicately trying to segue in that conversation that we were having about ted sure sure uh yeah i know and i i agree with that like i mean for me there's a couple of things. I mean, one, I, I always think about these books as sort of being like open texts in terms of like allowing readers like the maximum room, hopefully, to have their own sort of interpretations about what's happening and mm-hmm. and even to have their own feelings about what's happening. And there may be certain – I mean, I think there are definitely certain moments in all the books where I've run across readers who've had radically different feelings about like very specific moments about these same specific moments mm-hmm. um and i also think like it's really important to assume that the readers are bringing their own morality to the text yes you know right. i mean you have to you have to i mean it's just sort of respecting the reader i mean one of my favorite writers is this russian writer um isaac babel and he wrote these great Uh, stories of red cavalry stories and he actually traveled with he was jewish and he traveled with the cossacks who were Hmm. you know sort of carrying out this pogrom and he no they didn't know he was jewish he was undercover and he writes these really like horrific stories from the cossack point of view often forcing you to sort of find the humanity and the characters that are being victimized because he really believed that sort of like an easy empathy was did nothing for anyone and so he really sort of forces you as a reader to hold on to your morality and your ethics and wrestle with the story to sort of find where the real humanity in the story is and i think actually dennis cooper does something really similar with his Mm -hmm. books too Mm -hmm. where he really sort of like he's forcing you to you know to bring your own moral compass to the books um nabokov does that some as well and i think that that's it's an interesting I think it's like a really respectful point of view for a writer to take um, to his or her reader. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it makes me think of, and I guess we kind of decided that maybe this axis wasn't quite right, but there's sort of a y-axis and an x-axis here, right? And there's, uh, and it's the relationship between, you know, an author and his audience, right? And this vertical top-down one gives you the idea of the author as a sort of... Um, a sage giving gi- giving down like like you you had said Moses giving the 10 commandments right this is i'm going to give you sort of a, a gift wrapped new morality right that you can then sort of unpack and you can try it on and you can see how it works right but it's much more interesting to think of it in a horizontal way where 
like you said, I love the idea of the reader bringing their own morality to a work and interacting with it in such a way that they maybe come a, they may or may not come away changed, but they're engaging with it. It's it's not it's not a passive activity, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, reading should be a collaboration. I think like the only as a technology, the only thing that books have over sort of films and video games and some of these other sort of more immediate forms, music, is that like you you have to like jam it in your brain. Yeah, and it's a slow process. Like you have to like page by page cram it into your head, mm-hmm. um, and when you're being told basically not just what to think, but also how to feel Mm -hmm. to me, like ethically, that's like another form of like control mechanism. Mm -hmm. And like, you can have all the sort of like woke content you want in a book, but if you're still stage managing how people, you know, their emotions and how they should feel through certain moments in your story, Mm -hmm. you're still enacting the same repressive control mechanism that you're supposedly, um, you know, railing against. And, you know, to me, it's like this sort of, it's, it's actually this control mechanism at this level that really needs to be dismantled. And it's something that I think fiction and books can powerfully do. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. That's so cool to hear you say that. Yeah, because <clears throat> especially um, in, in these trying times where we have broken down into uh, what are called, you know, mimetic tribes, there's this really great article recently about um, how in the past oh five or six years or so it stopped being left and right, and we have splintered off into all these different these different tribes, basically based on what we very specifically believe. Um, mm. So it's it's less about um, giving people what the the giving them the meme plexes that the mimetic tribe demands. And it's almost like now books, <laughs> in a sense, are, if, if you think of this kind of landscape, right, of hunter-gatherer meme tribes, right, it's almost <laughs> like, it's almost like a, a tribe comes upon, you know, this sort of, this sort of totem, this, this, you know, like, Kubrickian monolith that they then, you know, interact with, and it forces them to, like, it forces them to, to put their, uh, their thought process, like, onto this thing, and there's this, you know, I'm picturing now this huge psychedelic dance that these two things are doing together. But the idea of book as as challenge has always kind of been, it's always kind of been what does separate books from the rest of the kind of quote-unquote entertainment mediums. Now, not always, obviously. There are difficult films to get through and there are difficult records to listen to. But but books really, I mean, they're physically heavy sometimes, Right. I mean, they're they're pretty intimidating things. So, I think that uh, you know maybe sometimes I'll see on on social media these kind of, I guess, back and forth about whether books should should challenge or whether they should be entertaining. And it's like, ¿por qué no los dos? Why not both? Right? Like, sure, absolutely. You can, you can you can do both. But I guess I say all that to say that, I guess I'm I'm saying that to diffuse this idea. Like, I'm not I'm not trying to say that books shouldn't be entertaining, but books as challenging objects is really uh is is lighting me up right now i guess (laughs) yeah i mean i think it's it's an important role that i think books can play and i think it's also radical when we realize how often the entertainment that we consume is like 
every sort of beat has been um, tested for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and to encounter something that leaves a more open field, whether it's a book or a movie or what, you know, music or whatever, um, that's not just trying to press your buttons in a way that it knows is going to work mm-hmm. is a, is a pretty, is a pretty radical act these days, I think. Right, right. It's just like, yeah, it's like the anti-lifetime movie. Hold on one second. Hey, dog, I know you like butt scratches a lot, and that's cool. I love you too, but I need you to go lay down. Thanks so much. Sorry, my dog is just like <laughs> pressing herself into me. Like, father, why are you talking into this strange machine? I'm right in front of you. Uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, and I just, it makes me think too about a lot of kind of experimental writers, I guess, for lack of a better term. This year, I really got into them heavy, right? Um, people, have you read uh, like Gary Shipley? Or um, I'm sure you've read Blake Butler, right? Oh, sure. I've read a lot of Blake Butler. I haven't right. read Gary Shipley, no. Gary Shipley's an English dude, I believe, who is in not very similar to Blake at all, but just it's the same kind of very like complex, difficult, um, kind of gross writing um Mm -hmm. so i I feel like your writing is interesting because it's doing some of the same things that these other guys are doing but like you said it does seem that you have um maybe a little bit more of a focus on characters so you're getting a little bit of both worlds right like there are these kind of complex experimental things moving through it but then i'm getting i promise i'm getting to a question um but so basically, it seems like all of that is anchored in your particular artistic um, obsessions. Maybe do you do you feel that when you're writing, you have particular things that you keep coming back to? I mean, they keep appearing on the page, so yeah, I'd say so. I mean, sometimes I think like, oh, this is so new, and then I think back, I'm like, oh my god, it's just like the same, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's that's fine. Um, I mean, I do think I'm, I'm more interested in character and I'm more interested in a propulsive sort of narrative than someone like Blake say, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where I think like, although a lot of our underlying concerns are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, And that stuff is in my work because I'm interested in how you can sort of do like both and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like you can have that character stuff happening, how you can have some of the plot stuff happening that I mean it's been it's been nice that a lot of people have told me like they've read this book in one or two sittings or you know something like that and it's sort of engineered to work that way um and that's that's nice uh but yeah I mean a lot of the same a lot of the same obsessions definitely come out and from book to book and sometimes I try not to fight them. I mean, I think I always think back about like the J.G. Ballard thing about he talked yes. about like writing his obsessions until they didn't have any power anymore. And when I was a younger writer, I was always trying to like from story to story, like reinvent the wheel because I thought like I've used it up in that past story and it has to all be fresh. And once I just got rid of that idea, the writing became so much better yeah. and had much more power because I was plugged into something that I really cared about or subconsciously like really sort of lit me up um and i don't know as long as there are enough obstacles that i'm still pushing against something 
um, that stuff still has power and I think hopefully still feels new and not too repetitive for people who've read more than one of my books. I don't think so. I think that something, I can't remember where I heard it, but it's it's very much along the lines of what you're saying, where one of the tricky things about being an artist, uh, specifically a writer, is that you're not only you know, fighting against this idea of not of trying not to repeat yourself from book to book, but we also get it in our head that we also we, we're not allowed to do variations on any kind of themes either. So we have to stay away from what's been done by everybody else too. And that leads to gigantic writer's block. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just no it's just no way to be. Yeah. No, I, no. I mean it, yeah, it's better to I think the best thing is to, for me, what what turned out to be a real turning point was sort of figuring out what my obsessions really were and sort of turning down the noise in my head around what everyone else was interested in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and figuring out what I was actually interested in. Because I, for a long time, it was really hard to distinguish my own obsessions from the obsessions I thought I should be having. Mm -hmm. Right. What, well... What do you what do you mean like the obsessions that you should be having? Like what's an example? I, I mean I mean I mean by like you know what what are a lot of other people writing about? What are what's what sorts what seems to be in the air that seems cool and interesting? What just sort of following other artistic ideas that were cool but they weren't necessarily and they were interesting to read about and think about but weren't necessarily at the core of what really excited me. Mm -hmm. Which was and what. So, um, I don't know, man, there are three books. Uh, <laughs> I guess my answer would be to hand you one right now, be handing you one book at a time very slowly, you know, like right, right, right. You're, These... you're in these obsessions. Um, yes. things falling apart. There's one ritual ritual. Yeah. Ritual is a big one. Does ritual and the question, does ritual have power if you don't believe in it? Hmm. Does ritual have power outside of your belief in it? And if so, what is that power? Mm -hmm. And if not, why keep returning to the rituals? Mm -hmm. um, music, for sure. I mean, in some ways, writing Destroy All Monsters was sort of an attempt to like write about music head on and try and flush it all out of my system, mm -hmm. um, which didn't work. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, that's definitely one. I mean, uh, stuff around the body is definitely, you know, is definitely another. Um, grief would be one, probably. Mm -hmm. Funerals that somehow goes under ritual. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It would, I mean, honestly, some of these things, like I, I, I'm, I'm on a need-to-know basis with myself about yes. these things. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Like, I don't, like, I really don't want to know. A, a, a friend of a friend who's a psychoanalyst, like, he uh, he read Miracle Poor and offered to uh, do an analysis session with me so he could tease out, so I could understand exactly what sort of motivated my writing. And I was like, hell no. Like, why <laughs> would I want to do that? That sounds terrible. Right, right. No, and I, I, I do think, I think that ritual is an exact, like, a ritual is a, a, a definite, it's, it's kind of sort of against all that, right? Um I think that, well, first of all, I, uh, to answer your, your first kind of obsession thing with ritual, I, I do think ritual works, and I don't, I don't know why either. Um, there's a recent book called The Power of Eight, right? And 
it's kind of self-helpy. I'm not sure. I think it might be like sort of like a Christian self-help book. Um, but they did a study about uh, prayer, for example. And they did studies on, on patients who I think were sick with cancer. And uh, they had eight people pray for one person who was dying to get better. And the other person was the control group. I'm not sure if, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if this was the most ethical study, but, uh, but it ended up, I guess, over the course of a bunch of these different studies, it turns out that in some small way, praying for people, like the people who got prayed for did get better. Um, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there may be, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether there's something about the energy you put into something, some act or whatever whatever that is but it's yeah i don't know it's something i actually ended up being surprised i was so interested in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it started coming out a lot in the writing and i realized oh this is something that's really and then it started coming out in the theater pieces i was doing and other things like that and oh that's true yeah your your sleep one that's that's that whole well, thing is a ritual that is, but the one after that's even more so because the one after that's called Vine of the Dead, and it was about trying to contact the director's dead mother. Whoa. How did I not hear about this? That's awesome. Yeah, so we, uh, so the director uh, who I work with, uh, Jim Finley, he's like a hardcore materialist atheist, or at least at that point was, and um, he was really, he really felt like the one thing that was sort of his vulnerability, his mother died when he was like 18 or 19 was wanting to hear from his mother. Mm-hmm. That's really sort of like the only thing from the other side he wanted to hear from. Mm-hmm. And he really felt like that. So that that's where he wanted to sort of press in, was on that vulnerability. Um, and so we started working with a voodoo priestess cool. uh, about doing some rituals. And she dropped the project because she... Um, she could vouch for the safety of the performers, but she couldn't vouch for the safety of the audience. And she felt it was unethical to move forward. Wow. That's so interesting. Did, did you see any, so there were rehearsals then for this? There were some rehearsals. There was some work done with her. Um, she's a very, uh, she's a very nice person. And, uh, there were some things that she and the director started to conjure up that were, I think, troubling to her and slightly troubling to the director. Can as you, well. Can you go into any, is it personal stuff? Can't, can't really yeah, it is personal, it. but actually we ended up folding a lot of this into the show, okay. in, which was interesting because the sort of rituals we sort of ended up, the way we ended up sort of solving this. Pro- so the idea of the idea of the dream of the red chamber, which was a play for a sleeping audience. Like we literally had 50 beds and we invited the audience to come and take a nap or in fact sleep all night through the piece. And this sort of, the crux of that piece was really about getting at like the, the transaction in theater is like the actor will do something interesting. And because of that, you will pay attention as an audience member. And we were like, what happens if you break that bond? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what comes out of that? And right, so right, right. with Vine of the Dead, the, what we were really looking at was like, what if it's not actually a theater piece? What if it's a ritual? Hmm. What if the sort of, what if we, we really get to like sort of the, the, the lie at the heart of theater and really try and like poke into that and expose that and live in that place where like, is this a ritual or is this theater? Hmm. What is, Uh, what what do you think that the distinction between those two is? 
Well, I think it's a it's a fine line for sure. I mean, we were really trying though initially. the The initial impulse was to involve this um, this woman who had a voodoo practice. I shouldn't actually call her a voodoo priestess. That's not accurate. Okay. Um, she had her own sort of spiritual practice um, that involved the you know this sort this sort of spiritual technology um, and. It was really the idea was that we would do it, you know, we would do a couple of we do a couple of performances, but they would be this ritual. And if contact was made, the show was over. Hmm. And if contact was made, we never do the show again. But between him and his. So so the idea was the idea was to actually do a ritual and then find some way to maybe theatrical theatricalize a little bit of it but to really like to do an actual ritual before an audience. But that didn't, that actually didn't work. Mm-hmm. That did out for various reasons. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that happened was um, they were the director and um, this woman, the spiritual practice were were doing these sort of freehand drawings. They had done a little ritual and they started drawing a lot about bees and they went and bought some honey and just this kept coming back. And uh, right when they were doing this, uh, the director's daughter was on this uh, field trip out just outside of New York city. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she and her, uh, these other third graders were attacked by a swarm of bees. Whoa. And so it never happened before. There's like not known to be a lot of bees out there. And like literally the swarm like chased these kids and their camp counselor for like, you know, 10 minutes and stung a lot of the kids. And that's crazy. That is, that is so interesting. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think I've heard somewhere that uh, in a way, I guess that is kind of making contact because once you, once the synchronicities start, that's when contact has been made. I well, guess. she's like, yeah. So, so the the way the woman explained it to us was that, you're going to find all sorts of ways to talk about how this isn't what it is, Mm. but like, it's going to keep happening. You know, once you've sort of opened this portal, it can keep happening. And she's like, it's much easier to invite spirits that are very harmful because those are happy to come across. And it's very, very difficult to coax out spirits that might be helpful to you because they're very wary and understand that this is usually doesn't end well. And it's very frustrating. Um, Anyway, we, we really thought that we could sort of – a solution would be to sort of hide the ritual in a box from the audience and mm. this ritual would happen. And that way we would sort of protect the sacredness of it. And that way um, it wouldn't be sort of giving away any secrets or anything like that. And the woman explained to us, she said, no, it actually works the exact opposite. She said, the more you hide it, the less power you have over it. Right, right. The more transparent you make it, the more you can control it. That kind of sounds like uh, the fact that when they, you know, when they uh, try to do studies of psi effects on people, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, there's this correlation between uh, people actually having a belief in psi effect and them having, you know, a statistical likelihood above probability to actually be able to enact a psi effect, right? And it's, it sounds like mumbo jumbo. It sounds like, well, if you don't, if you really, if you don't believe, then it just won't happen. Uh, but that seems to be exactly what happens. So if you, like you said, like if you hide it, if you, if you don't have that kind of belief energy going into the ritual itself, the ritual kind of won't work. It's, it's this interesting catch 22 thing, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is. And we ended up for that show, like not 
we ended up creating a series of art rituals is what sort of what we called them. Um, and sort of talked about the process of having made this show, of having found a witch on Tinder um, to try and come channel voices for us in our space. Um, and things like this, the sort of process that we went through. Um, but it was a long enough show that it really ended up actually really breaking down the performers. And the director was also one of the performers, one of the main performers. And interesting things started to happen just because of the ritualized nature of the show itself. And see, and that's exactly where you had asked before, like what's the difference between a ritual and theater? And like I th our show is definitely trying to sort of collapse that as much as we could without doing something that was an actual ritual or it, the, what, the ritual that we believed in that we were doing was making this, this theater piece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of, but a lot of it, like you said too, like it depends on sort of the belief and sort of like the woman had said to us, like you'll, you can look at it from different ways, but you can, um, from this and pretend it's not happening, but in other, from another viewpoint, it is happening. And that was actually something I was playing with in destroy all monsters too, because there's sort of a supernatural element floating through that book right? or, or possibly floating through the book, depending on how, what angle you want to look at it from. Well, now, now that you talk about rich, now I'm kind of recontextualizing the, almost the entire book as, you know, itself being a case of a clash of a lot of different rituals, right? And rituals themselves standing in for almost supernatural, like you said, supernatural forces. So that's interesting that you brought that up because there is this very sort of almost not even cult-like, I don't want to use that word, but there is a ritual aspect to the shooters, right? Like there's, sure. it's, it's very kind of uh, methodical. They become sort of like obsessed. They, they have that sort of shooter look about them, yeah. right? Although, and, although some of them have knives and bombs too, just to complicate things a little bit. But oh, yes, the right. killers. Right, the killers. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, so it does kind of strike me as like, when I was first reading, I was thinking of, you know, music itself sort of, you know, we've developed this kind of mutation that has made it so that kind of like you were saying exactly how you didn't want it perceived, you know, it's something in the water. Or, you know, when there's <laughs> right, no right. more room left in hell, people are going to murder uh, rock bands, right? Um, yeah. But now, now definitely, it's making me think more about it in terms of ritual. Well, I, I mean, suppose. the perform, I mean, musical performances themselves are a form of ritual. Of course they are. Yeah. Extremely potent ritual, too, right? Can be, can yeah. be, mm -hmm. can be a very potent form of ritual for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's definitely that, you know, that as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the act of singing in front of someone, the sort of ritual getting up of doing that, the, I mean, there's, there's also the sort of funeral in the book, that sort of ritual that the several funerals in the book or the, mm -hmm. the burying of the ashes of one of the characters. Right. Right. I almost said it. Nah, don't do that. No spoilers. Okay. Um, it's a hard book to spoil though. I don't know. It kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I do think the whole kind of Florian arc is a really interesting part of the book, right? Um, this kind of, I, well, do you, can I ask, do you have a preference between side A and side B? Not really. I mean, it's interesting because initially there was just a side A for the book. Sure. Yeah. And as it took a long time to find a new agent and try and get this book out into the world, they sort of really became obsessed with the idea of the book being like a, you know, like a, a cassette or an old uh -huh. vinyl single. And I started to think like, what's the B side? What's the B side? And, um, 
And initially when I was writing it, I thought it might be something more like Novi Saab that could sort of stand on its own and sort of be published separately if it needed to. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of how I justified like taking this book that was already hard to sell and making it twice as difficult. Um, <laughs> or that, I mean, which I don't think is actually true, but that's like what friends told me. They're like, are you insane? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and when I finished the B side, I really after and sat with it for a little while. I really realized that like the two things together actually made the whole book. And I was in a in a way like so grateful that the book had had such a hard time getting into the world because it gave me the time to do the B side, which wouldn't have happened otherwise. That's funny. So I was really thankful in an odd way that it had this sort of tortured path. Um, into the world because that's, I mean, FSG bought the book and two weeks before that I had just done a final polish on the B side. So they bought it knowing that the B side existed. Oh, it was, but, well, never, it was kind of... but never having read it. Oh, okay, cool. Well, that's and not, no and, pressure. And initially having very little interest in it until they read it. Right, right, right. Oh yeah. Cause it is, it is great too. It's ve- that that's where it is what ties the whole book together. Now that you mention it, if it was just side a, I don't, well, I do think so. Here's the thing that's interesting about this, as I've found, is that if, when there is just side A, the last chapter in side A takes a much greater weight. And I think that you sort of see yeah. in the last chapter of side A the killing, the culling of the deer becomes much more, more clearly sort of a reinscribing of the epidemic. Sure, sure. And it's sort of like, and you sort of see that last chapter re- in some ways like replaying the rest of the book. Okay. From this odd way, but when when there's just side A, you sort of like I think you're looking for like why the hell is the ending here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so side B, you're just sort of like I'm gonna flip it over and find out, you know. Um, so I do. It, it is interesting. I think that like the stress falls in different places because there are two parts now. Right. Right. That that is um, interesting. I wonder if anybody reads it B to A. Few people who have, and even weirder than that. So. Initially, I thought you could read it B to A, and I think you can. It's designed so that you can, but it should only be read side B first for people who really like conceptual work, who mm-hmm. don't need any sort of character development initially, right? and are happy to be disoriented. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There are readers who would, I think, really enjoy reading it, but they're less of them than they think they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense. So like it definitely I think for like 95% of people probably even myself included it's better read side A first to side B. I have there's some people who've told me three different people have told me they read a chapter in side A then turn it over read a chapter in side B and keep doing that and try and read into the middle. That's that's interesting because at a certain I mean side B is much shorter. So it's insane actually I think but yeah, that's crazy behavior. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I take no responsibility for anything you get or don't get out of reading it that way. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, that's wow. Now I'm thinking about all the different ways you had mentioned, and this is something that I geek out on a lot about how the kind of presentation of the book—it's you called it designed to be read that way, or not designed to be read that way, but designed to be uh, read in a propulsive way, so yeah. that you know you could get your. Uh, you know, Jeff Jacksonisms in there and still keep everybody on board, right? And it yes. is interesting, like the things that they do on this with the different colors of the pages and the different fonts, right? And there's a lot of white space. I've been thinking about this a lot because this is something that I try to do now with 
most of my books, both the ones that I write and publish, it's I try to include a lot of white space because I do. I think that acts as a mental sort of breather. You don't feel so kind of hemmed in by all the text. So it's not really a question, I guess. I'm just. Well, I mean, it's all and it's all the design is all except for the gray pages is all following the way I laid it out in Word. Oh, really? Yes, that was all. I spent a lot of time doing that. I spent a lot of time figuring that out. It's interesting because sometimes I found, and this was a surprise, that sometimes a solution to like a plot problem or a character issue was actually layout and oh, not interesting. Sure. Interesting. And what can you give me an example of that? Um, that kind of okay. Stuff so like me. so so for instance, one of the things was like I really like I was writing in third person for a lot of the book. And I, I just sort of felt like I really want to have these moments of how like we get into like I just want some get into the character's head briefly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how can I do that? The birds, right? Yeah. Like the bird no, stuff. no, not the bird stuff. Mm-hmm. The uh, so like in so throughout there there are like little bits of first person char- bits of the character's thoughts oh, that right, are of course, yeah. italics mm-hmm. that are sort of like centered in the middle of the page mm-hmm. that are in a smaller font. Right. Right. And it was figuring out how that was laid out so that you could sort of dip into and dip out of it without it, without it, with almost like barely even realizing that's what you're getting. Right. It's like all of a sudden, like it's violating point of view and you're going into the character's head and you're getting one moment of their thinking. Sometimes it's also like I start, you know, and I start to play around with that where sometimes these little thoughts are maybe other characters' thoughts. Mm hmm. Or other or things that are just sort of floating through the air or like their fears being dramatized or something very briefly. Um, and so like when I figured out how to lay that out and not and in a way that didn't call too much attention to itself, like that answered so much of problems I had had about like how to how to write about these characters and their feelings without getting too close, but also not being too far away. Mm-hmm. It always makes me a little bit uncomfortable that kind of pop style of writing where you go directly into a character's head and you go from Stephen King does this all the time, but you go from somebody walking down the street and then it's all like, and then he thought, you know, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner today. Oh yeah. My feet yeah. really hurt, you know, but now that you mentioned that, though, that style of how you did it does kind of remind me of like silent film dialogue cards, you know, like where it, like it goes to black. And then there's just like words on the screen. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. No, I do. Of course. Yeah. I, yeah. But I think it's it's also I think the white space, hopefully, and sort of the way it's laid out. When it was more obtrusively laid out, it stopped you more, and it mm-hmm. was really more about like hopefully not breaking your thought pattern. You know, not breaking the rhythm too much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like figuring out how much space that was was like a tricky thing. Right. Right. So the number one thing, I think I told you this as soon as I read it, the number one thing that this did bring to mind was uh, Elephant. It kind of... Okay, now you mean the, now which elephant? Uh, Alan Clark, the Alan oh, Clark good. elephant. Oh, good, thank God. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's the other one? It's a Gus Van Zandt elephant. Oh, that's the, oh, that's literally the school shooter one, right? And it's inspired by Alan Clark's elephant, but it's a pale, pale version. Okay, well, I have not seen that one. Good, um... good, I'm so glad. <laughs> Um, you know, see, interestingly, you're the only person to have brought this up. What? Really? The only person to have brought this up. Now, my editor knew this because he's a big Alan Clark fan, but like literally, you're the only other person to have brought this up. That might just, I might just be lucky on that because I had watched, um, I think This is England. 
and then I just went down the rabbit hole, man. And I got. Well, going... I, I wrote about Alan Clark for the fanzine, so I was sort of surpri- at length. So I was sort of surprised that like it didn't come up. Yeah, you know like... what? No, I might be wrong. I think it might have been you writing about it for the fanzine that made me start. That made me watch Elephant. Yeah, no, it was. That's very interesting. I think it was you. I think it was that, and then I looked it up. But anyway, so Elephant is uh, this film about uh, what's it called? The Troubles, I believe. The Troubles, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just just feels very Irish, right? Like just this hyper hyper <laughs> hyper violent plague. It's like oh the troubles, um, but yeah. So it's just it's sequence after sequence after sequence of um, of murder, basically. And yeah, he so Alan Clark was apparent. So apparently, Alan Clark was the BBC gave him a permission to go make a narrative film about the killings in Northern Ireland, and there had been a lot of so it was a lot of assassinations happening there, and it, it was like real personal. Like people coming into, you know, just like it is in the movie. Um, and he spent like six months there and felt like he couldn't, he couldn't make a narrative film that wouldn't somehow just sort of betray the seriousness of the situation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the and the real horror of the situation. So it's this real sort of like despairing film, and like you don't know who is IRA and who isn't in it. Right. That, yeah, that's there's no there's no signifier. So people in so people in Ireland and the UK watching it also have, there's sort of this extra charge of wait who's the good guy and who's the bad guy here mm-hmm. who's you know depending on what you know political side you're on, and um, I was I've been obsessed with that movie for for decades uh, for a long time, and was really interested in how I could harness some of the energy of that and the feel of that and put that into prose and then bring something else to it hopefully as well Mm -hmm. yeah because it it, there is this feeling as it goes on because you keep at least me reading destroy all monsters you keep waiting for it to not happen you know what i mean for it to but it's kind of just relentless right it just keeps being successful time after time after time after time so that's that's one of the main elephant type things that the book reminded me of was just yeah, that, I mean, like it's not it's not stopping. There's not like no hero stands up right and 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 stops it, and no no act of God stops it either. It just keeps, for the most part, happening over and over and over again. I mean, I thought of the beginning of Side B with the killings as sort of like my speed metal opening to the book, you sure. know, mm-hmm. right? Or just like, like... This, this montage sequence of of crazy wild shit yeah yeah like here here we go um and uh you know and i did try like within that too like i tried to build in space for people to navigate it however they wanted because as it goes along it moves it starts to move further and further away from the act of violence mm-hmm. right um it doesn't make it any less creepier i think it may be more so um but yeah, no, I mean, Alan Clark, I'm really interested. I love his films. And um, I was really interested also in sort of like the single take nature of Elephant. Like each of the killings is one take. It's one long shot. Mm-hmm. And it's with a steady cam moving, following, usually following one of the killers, but not always. Not always. That was one th- another thing I was going to bring up is that sometimes you don't even know who the killer is going to be, right? Yes, right. Oh, and 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 sometimes it's following the victim, which also happens in Destroy All Monsters in one in juncture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was interested in like how do you 
how do I get the feel of a single take? Right. How do I get the feel of this of this walking wonderful steady cam mm -hmm. in prose? Because there's something about I, I think he did that because you just you feel like you're trapped in that moment and you mm -hmm. can't get out of it and you desperately want to get out of it. Right. And I thought that was a very interesting and sort of ethical way to treat violence. Yeah. So that, I guess that comes back to, I mean, you're already well equipped to do that because, you know, there's a lot of, I don't even know if love, well, I'll go ahead with, I'll go with loving uh, descriptions of, like I said, like decay and, you know, of, of clubs and, you know, of the, of the atmosphere. There's a lot of that. So that, you do have that kind of, I don't know if cinematic is right, but there is, you do kind of paint that well. Well, it's also at that point too, like it really is about feeling bodies moving through space. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so space becomes important in the camera, you know, and sort of as compared to Mira Corpora, like we need to see the space a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Like it's, Mira Corpora is so much it's more hallucinatory. And I knew when I was starting this book that like the hallucinatory dial was going to have to be turned down for this to work. Right. Right. And still have these hallucinatory moments and this ability to have this dream logic floating through the book, but not, it just, the story didn't require it to be sort of jacked up to the level it was in Mira Corpora. Yeah. Yeah. So there is just a lot of more being able to focus on, you know, these characters and how they deal with with death and that's one of the again to go back to uh the kind of side a and side b thing it kind of is interesting to see how i don't know should we just talk about we could just talk about it i guess yeah like i guess we little... say i guess we say at this point like if you haven't read the book you should go buy it and read it <laughs> exactly come back to the podcast <laughs> right exactly go buy it go, now go. and then yeah right. yeah yeah okay so basically inside b what's that said but seriously read it Listeners should do that. They should. They absolutely should. <laughs> with with all, all joking aside, right? Um, so yeah, so in part, inside B rather, uh, what you do with that is you flip it entirely, right? So in the first part, you have Zini, right? Am I saying that correctly? I figured I was. I say Zen. I say Zenny, but Zenny, you know. How on earth do you get Zenny from that? It's spelled literally like Genie with an X. Uh, she, cause her name is Jennifer. And so it's sort of the Jen Zen. <laughs> I'm just, you actually took my question serious. I'm just joking. It's just, I'm just messing <laughs> with you. Uh, so she, um, her, her boy, her boyfriend is killed, right? He's one of the uh, victims of this plague, right? Um, and then in side B, it's all kind of flipped around, right? And yeah. And so what, yeah, I mean, for me and what made side B viable to me was I didn't want to do like the Rashomon thing where it's just like the events seen from a different character's perspective. Uh -huh, right. I really wanted to make sure that like the parts couldn't fit together. Like you just couldn't do it. And if you tried to do it, you'd really hurt your head. Well, that's, and um, that's, that's the other thing too, is that even the characters, so there are different characters who, who there's a different character who dies in part B, but also the characters themselves seem different right like they're kind of well, they different flip people. genders right 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 yeah of course they yeah. flip genders right, so eddie right, right. becomes edie and florian becomes florence that's right yeah yeah and so they have slightly different. different some of them like eddie and edie are both sort of managers of a band mm -hmm. but florian is friends with sean sean's oldest friend and florence and both of their nicknames are flow at different points in the book Florence is 
Zenny's oldest friend. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 triangulation of the relationships flips a little bit with Eddie and Edie being sort of like more stable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, why why did you not want it to fit like that? Just because that's been done, or are you getting at something by making those two so so square peg in a round hole? Kind of? Well, to me, it's to me it's almost related to. I mean, this is where some of the supernatural and the metaphysical stuff comes in. If you want it to come in, um, where I mean, it's also related to like the trap doors in the mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. There are all these trap doors in the book, and I sort of wanted, like, when you come to side B, I wanted to, in some ways, to feel like you'd fallen through a trap door, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you'd come out the other side of something else, mm-hmm. and that it was. Well, I mean, there are a couple of reasons. One was that I thought it was interesting, like what happens when different characters have died and different mm-hmm. characters are grieving, and what does it say about these different versions of them? What does it say about these different versions of themselves? What's the same and what's different? And it forces you to look at the relationships between all these different things. And I guess I hoped that by doing that, that would also force you to rethink a lot of the relationships and a lot of the connections and a lot of the patterning that happens inside A and that happens throughout the book, that in a certain way, the patterns are more important than the plot mm-hmm. um, or could be more important than the plot if you want them to be, that the, 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 but that the patterns are very important in, in how meaning is created in the book or one of the ways that meaning is created in the book. And, uh, and to point that out, it was also a way because I didn't, I really wanted like side B to like earn its right to be there. And so I wanted to have different characters, you know, to see sort of different shades of reactions to what was happening. And also I wanted to include scenes that weren't in side A. So side B, like side A doesn't include a funeral. Mm -hmm. Mm I wanted to have a formal funeral and I wanted to see the characters like right when the grief is really fresh. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy is really fresh. And you don't really see that inside it. You see the months after this has happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to have an encounter with one of the killers or maybe one of the killers. And I wanted like that to happen. And so that those seem to me like two important scenes that don't happen inside A mm-hmm. that I felt like could be dramatized inside B. I also wanted it to feel... I want it to feel familiar, but also that like the echoes that you start to see from side A play out in different ways. Mm-hmm, right. So that like so there are like narrative surprises for you. And if you read it side B to side A, that the same thing happens. There's a lot of surprises for you, regardless of which side you read it from first. Right. Right. And that was important to sort of keep the whole thing activated, you know? Right. Right. That's so I mean, interesting. It was weird because, like, I had finished Side B when Twin Peaks: The Return started. I was going to bring up this. Lynch. I was totally going to bring up when you talked well, about and, trap and I started, doors. like, you yeah. know, and I, I basically finished it when this whole thing started. And I was like, oh my god, like everyone's going to think I just like totally copied this. Uh, right, um, right, right. Uh, but I did feel like a total kinship with these sort of parallel. I mean, which Lynch was doing before Twin Peaks: The Return, but he does it so much more aggressively. This idea of these parallel universes and this idea of how the same characters morph and change mm-hmm. within these parallel universes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no, and talking, uh, when, you, when you just said the pattern is more important than the plot, 
I connected that with the trapdoor thing, and the first film that comes to mind, obviously, is uh, Mulholland Drive, right? Um, oh, right, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'm thinking about that, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the different identities and that. I read something recently that was very interesting because the common um, interpretation of Mulholland Drive, obviously, is that the beginning is a sort of fantasy, right? And then uh, the second part of the film is uh reality right so it's 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 like the opposite of um lost highway right exactly but the what i read i wish i could remember who said this but what i was reading was that there's no real proof that both sides aren't dreams right that oh yeah yeah. that it's that it's actually all a dream and so thinking about it in terms that opened up so much for me in terms of fiction and literature in general because so much uh, when dreams are introduced, it's in kind of like a matrix way, you know, what's real, what's not real. Is this the real world where everything sucks or is this the matrix where you can have superpowers? Right. And the idea of that being, um, of them both being dreams, like I like the idea of putting that on to destroy all monsters, right. Or both being real or both being real. Oh, I like that too. I flipped yet again. Oh, out, out chest by the master. I <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I mean? The pattern yeah. being more important than plot. So in, in side B and in side A, you're, it's more about exploring certain patterns rather than here are the two plots and here's a diagram of how it all works with like red yarn, you know? Um, right. Anyway, that's just my mind being blown. I like that a lot. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's interesting because some, a couple of readers have said, oh, when I got to side B, I realized like that was the reality. The other one was a dream or vice versa, which is fine. Like that's sure. a fine interpretation, but yeah, I, 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 hopefully it does exactly what you said. and like complicates the idea of what's dream, what's reality, how, you know, and the idea that like it can be both or it can be both dream and reality. And there's a reason why, I mean, the two dreams that are in the book, um, which are written in the same sort of pattern. In side A, it's a dream that's shared by Zenny and Florian. Mm. Mm. And in side B, it's a dream that's apparently shared by many people. It's shared by Sean and Zenny, but in fact, it's a dream that's been circulating around that a lot of people have been having. And in a certain way, I almost thought of it as the book itself dreaming. Mm. Oh. And it's written in second person, so that in a way, you're invited into the dream, like quite literally as a reader. You are speaking my language, man. I love the idea of a of a of the act of reading a book is actually the the book's dream itself, and that the author is just this sort of interpreter to the best of your ability, right? Because side B has was always there, you know. Even though side A wasn't there when you, you know, were shopping the book around, side B was always there, and it's I just can't help but think of this, you know this other half of the book's dream sort of pumping the brakes on material reality because it's like wait a minute hold on like you left like you know you, you left you left the kid at, it's like home alone or whatever you know you, yeah. we, we left kevin at home right <laughs> right 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 <laughs> well also i mean the other thing which i haven't talked about but since i'm divulging so many secrets here anyway um i don't know what it is about me people do this all the time but yeah go ahead uh, they're good questions. You're engaging. <laughs> so it's sort of a, if you had, if we'd been talking like really like right after the book came out, like I wouldn't be talking about half of this. Sure, sure. Uh, also, but a lot of uh, the dream and at the end of side B, almost all the phrases are taken from phrases in side A. 
Interesting. So that so there's this sort of. I'm trying to think of what to do with that. So when you say hold on, so when you say phrases, what what do you mean? Like like literal. I mean like literal text fragments. Oh, okay. like I literally collaged so that it's made from this different reality. So, but it's but they're all scrambled in different orders, and I and I've had rewritten a few things, but like it was important to me that like it felt like a sort of summation, but also like it's also a complete reinscribing. Yeah. So I noticed. I think I dream of the of the materials in a different way. I think I picked up on that with the killers. I think the killers is where that was really sort of where I recognized it, right? Where I was like, oh, that's something that I've seen before, right? Not not even just scene-wise, but actual like lines, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But that's that's very interesting. So in a way, hmm, that makes and me that's wonder. And that's something that's not like, it's not like important for readers to get that. That was like just for me, but it felt right to do it that way. It felt like the book wanted that. It, so that's, yeah, that's what I was going to get at it. So now I'm wondering if it's less of a case of, um, of leaving Kevin at home and rather was side A pregnant, right? And it just needed that gestation period to give birth to its reconstituted but very similar uh, child, in a sense. Like B being the child of A is, is interesting too. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't... Maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. Hmm. I think that's not quite right, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure how it's different. But well, I'm pretty sure it's different. But I don't think I could. I don't think I could unpack that right now. Well, so it's maybe maybe it's different in the sense that if if B was still floating around and just kind of waiting to 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 be written right from the pieces of the other one, it gives it more of a sense of uh, of agency. And we kind of did just get done talking about how you know you definitely didn't want part B to just be like either a tying up of threads or even a, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, isn't this like part A? So maybe my sort of metaphor of it being A's child feels a little bit too derivative of... Well, because in some ways I feel like the birth... So I guess I feel like it's written so that the birth goes both ways. And this is maybe Lynchian also, where side A gives birth to side B, and at the same time, while side B is birthing itself, it's, it's actually rebirthing side a because it forces you to rethink so mm -hmm. much about side a mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean i thought of it in some ways of like a cassette where like you're 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 both like erasing the other side and like creating something new on top of it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's both erasing it and rewriting it and sort of like the story somewhere in between like that the act of that happening is actually that the, the, that wheel turning of both erasing and creating something new on top of it is actually what is happening right and that's interesting if you think of the two in sort of like maybe a slightly disharmonious uh, conflict with each other that just what am i trying to say I've been thinking a lot lately as the act of creation itself as obviously an act of destruction, right? So, sure. and what I mean by that is that it's the cliche, right? Oh, this doesn't look the way it looked in my head. As soon as you start writing it down, you have killed it. So I have this kind of very masculine metaphor of, you know, 
of writers going out into the woods and, you know, hunting this majestic bear, right? And killing it and then skinning it and having a rug made out of it. And then people might buy that rug and put it on their floor and point at it and say, like, <laughs> right, look, right. There's, there's, that, there's that thing. And that's where your beautiful thought ends up, right? Um, but what's what you're making me think now, what might have been done with uh, something like Destroy All Monsters, is that if, if it's two, two acts of destruction but that, that, that have been sort of turned in on each other, right? Like two Furbies talking to each other for eternity, right? Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> in that way, they're sort of they're replicating the creation and destruction act of the writing of the book itself. Yeah, it's. I think it's related to what happens toward the end of Miracorpora, where the narrator talks about how to end a story, and it is by erasing each word mm -hmm. one by one and sort of creating the new text with the sharpened point of your eraser. Mm -hmm. um, that it there's something there's something about the creation and destruction that's actually happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. That. It's, it's in fact, I don't know, it's almost like not what's being created, but it's like the, it's like the turning of that motor and that impulse is both, is both, you know, uh, killing the bear and skinning it, or I, I don't, that's not the right way to say it. Um, but yeah, it's something about that, that, that enacting that motion, maybe. Okay. If that makes sense, I don't think it does. No, it does. It does. I'm just thinking about. Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of it being a. I'm also thinking about it being a, a book about music, which is yeah. a, which is an extremely difficult thing to do, right? Because music. But I don't know. Is music really more ephemeral than 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 reading is? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but. It, Hold on. I got like eight thoughts going on. Focus, David. Um, so it being a book about music and how to sort of capture that, the it being structured as this sort of perpetual creation and destruction machine might encapsulate, encage perhaps, a certain energy that you otherwise would have to go to a, a live concert to get. Yeah, I mean, I did to bring it back to music in a slightly different way, maybe more pedestrian way. Is okay, like I sure. was also thinking about like structuring this somewhat musically in terms of trying to get some of those, like I said, like the opening of side B, almost having a speed metal feel or mm -hmm, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, like trying to capture some of the rhythms of music and trying to capture a sort of musicality in it. And to capture some of the different energy and like the weird tonalities that sometimes like really great songs bring on where you're sort of like, I'm not sure how exactly I feel about this. I'm like elated and melancholy or I'm, you know, what, whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, sad and horny. I'm, you know, whatever <laughs> these conflicting things that uh -huh. are being yeah. generated in you at the same time that can happen. And I think that music's so great at generating these conflicting emotions in you simultaneously very quickly right um at its best and so i was also interested in like trying to get some of that musical energy in here to create some of these 
maybe hopefully sort of conflicting weird tonal things that are happening and and also like and also just to sort of charge the prose and the the pleasure of the reading of it and the and and the and the story well yeah and i think i think also i mean there's there's pleasure in just reading your prose anytime to give you a compliment there uh you're one of the best dude um <laughs> but uh he's like one of the best motherfucker I am the best. <laughs> no. uh but no, I, I. But again, that kind of brings it back to this idea of you know you're talking about how music makes you feel two things at once. So, I think that when people read something or when they listen to something and they feel two things at once, if they take those two things and go make something with both of, with those conflicting feelings, that's how art kind of proliferates and spreads. That's how it becomes uh, sort of viral in a way, right? And so this is not kind of neither here nor there, but I was thinking about, I don't know, I guess criticism of music and books and how a lot of it just doesn't do anything for me anymore. But it might it might be the art's fault. It might not. I, I think maybe a little bit of both. But anyway, my point is, is that, you know, when you create something like this book, for example, or like a particular album that you like a lot, sometimes that can produce uh, writing or films inspired by those things that are equal to or even better than the work itself kind of brings me back to i guess mark fisher who writes about music that i actually probably wouldn't listen to for the most part i'm not a huge goldie fan i don't know if you mm, are i'm not either. <laughs> i think you have to be british to like goldie that's my operating theory <laughs> yeah. on goldie actually right right totally no i agree but um but so i guess i guess what i'm just kind of saying is that what i love about this book and also other things like it, these kind of generative by way of being destructive pieces of art, is that I think that they're also, they're better than self-help books for going out and creating your own stuff, right? Because I think you spend a little bit of time with a sort of captured energy. To bring it back to my, you know, you, you brought it back to the very like practical, like this is what I was doing. And then I'm like, but what about, you know, magic and spirit, you know, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I'm just going to cut myself off there because I think I gave you about eight thoughts. I'm not sure if any of that made sense, but no, no, it all, it all makes sense. Okay. And I do, I mean, in terms of music, I've often thought about like, what are, you know, what are the type of bands or musical acts that sort of act like a spore that infects other people to make other great art? And what are the bands and the musicians who are sort of terminal acts, sort of done what they can, what they do as well as they can be done. And to copy them is just to end up being, there's certain, you know, there's certain forms of art that I think like open up pathways for others. And there are Mm -hmm. others that sort of like, are sort of like the summit of what they do. I don't think, I don't think one is worse than the other, but I've always been more interested in sort of like the Velvet Underground idea of like, only 10,000 people bought that record, but they all formed a band or yes, whatever. Yes, right. That, that it opens up pathways for people to follow down than sort of like Led Zeppelin or the Beatles, who if you try and copy them, you just become pale imitations of them and, you know, you just look foolish um, to use like classic rock examples. But uh, I mean, I think that's there's true in like, you know, electronic music where something uh, to bring it back to hauntology, something like Boards of Canada is a very generative band, very generative electronic act. Um, that opened up all these pathways and possibilities for people to follow. And I think that's, I I think that sort of art is exciting. I don't know that as an artist, you get to choose what sort of artist you are. Sure. Of course. Yeah. 
Um, but I do like that. I do like the idea of art sort of being a spore that goes and infects someone else to go create something because that's how art has worked for me. Like, mm-hmm. just like talking about the Alan Clark, for example, um, or, you know, any number of writers or films or, or music or whatever, um, that's been so important in terms of like, it's made me want to make art like going to see the jazz piano cecil taylor play was really it was really like a reminder of like if you want to make art like here's the level like here's the bar like what this guy is doing is like he sits at the piano and he like he transforms the entire room with his energy Hmm. and it's unbelievable i've never seen anyone really at that level do do that Hmm. um and it was like it's somewhat terrifying in terms of like how how on earth can anyone do this but it's but it's but it's also like it's also amazing that a human being did this Mm -hmm. this can you know this sort of thing can be accomplished by human beings if you were and that's an exciting if you were to speculate on it what do you what do you think some of those elements might have been With Cecil in particular, yeah, with that with that in, particular I mean, experience, Cecil's, yeah, I mean, what's interesting with Cecil, like the way he would always start his shows, he's a jazz pianist, and um, he would make his way out to the piano, and he wouldn't he wouldn't just come out and start playing. He would come out and he would have these sort of like he'd have this little ritual of coming to the piano, mm-hmm. and sometimes it'd be doing a little bit of dance, sometimes it'd be reciting this sort of poetry he'd written or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people really felt that like this part of Cecil's art was like embarrassing. Oh, Cecil's coming out and he's sort of dancing, you know, sort of moving around the piano a little bit, reciting a little bit uh-huh. of like Jewish poetry and what the fuck. Um, but to me, it was about he was he knew that he couldn't just sit down and play, that this was like a really important. It was like respecting the power of the piano and the power of the music. Hmm. And he had to, in front of us as an audience, and sometimes this would just last 10 seconds, but sometimes it would last three or four minutes, mm. depending on what his energy was and what the energy of the room was, that he needed to like, this was a serious thing he was about to do and plug into. Mm. And when he did, there was so much, he was so in the moment, and he clearly like rehearsed. I saw him play at Lincoln Center this three-hour solo concert. He apparently had rehearsed for it for like five months. He was like insane. Uh, But it felt like it was being created for you right there because it was. And there was so much joy and play. And just to watch his expression, the delight on his face as he was finding these notes. And he would play, he would play with his forearms and his fists. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, just really like intense, sometimes just noisy passages where he would just be, he, he would only play these Bosendorfer pianos, which had an extra bass octave. Hmm. And he would sometimes just beat the shit, like the early days of the pianos when he would play, literally keys would fly off because he would play them so hard. Oh, wow. But he also had this incredibly delicate touch. And when it needed to be delicate, he could just, it could be just as incredibly delicate as it needed to be. And when he needed to play with his forearms just to create these gales of noise and dissonance, mm-hmm. he would do that. That's and so that, that everything was available to him. And all of it was a delight to discover it in the moment. And it just, just that 
sense of commitment and that sense of, I don't know, like you could feel all the work in a certain sense that had gone into it, both mm -hmm. sort of artistically and technically and spiritually. But it was also carried so lightly. And it was presented to you in this really delightful way. But it was also like you either were like in there with Cecil and it, like literally what I loved about him watching him is your sense of time would disappear. And he could have been playing for 20 minutes or it could have been two and a half hours. It was really hard to tell. But you were either in it all the way and, and like having your life transformed or you'd be there 20 minutes and you just have to run screaming from the hall. Oh, wow. There was no middle point. Like literally you could not sit there with like your hand on your chin and be like, that's fascinating. Like, no, like it right. really like, like the energy was so intense that you either had to like go for it and be in it or you had to leave and people would leave his shows in droves. But there was something very primal about what he was doing too, and really connected. I actually, the one of the first times I saw him he, when he was playing at Lincoln Center, it, I was just out of college. I couldn't afford the ticket; it was way too expensive. Um, and so I talked my dad into taking me as a father-son outing. He had seen this really straight-ahead jazz pianist with me years before, and had really enjoyed that. So I'm like, "It's just like that, Dad. Come and you know." <laughs> <laughs> so he would buy my ticket for this Lincoln Center show. Um, assuming he was just going to hate it and he would probably walk out, but I, I get to see the show. Um, and he loved it. Oh, wow. And he was really like, he didn't have much context for it, but like, because he was willing to enter into it and was totally transformed by it. And I saw Cecil Taylor with my dad, like another five or six times. Hmm. That's amazing. There's a lot to pick apart in there. There's, there's, a, there's talking about like, you know, technique and dedication, but also, uh, tapping into the, into the primal and, you know, the ability to, to, to find things. I love the idea of him finding it. Like if they're, like they're floating out there somewhere and he's like, it oh, felt like it. Yeah. To that. watch him, it felt like, I'm sure these were passages he's rehearsed a lot, but it wasn't like he's trying to hit the notes, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. it was like, he's he's siphoning these marvelous gales of sound. Yeah. It and and he, he, he was someone who also understood that there was no difference between, um, between the primal and between like this incredibly, it's incredible complexity, hmm. you know, that he was drawing on Ellington and all this and, and, and Henry Cowan, all this 20th century music, and also was a big fan of Marvin Gaye and soul and all this other stuff. And, but like he was, he was, there's all this, he was wielding massive amounts of information, but also able to like put it across, tap into the primalness of that at the same time. Hmm. That makes me think of, um, I don't know, actually probably of a lot of my favorite artists, especially musical, uh, to, not not in jazz, but in terms of rap. Um, mm -hmm. In rap, a lot of like one of my favorite artists is this guy Lil B. I don't know if oh sure, know. yeah. But okay. Lil B is somebody who, you know, um, can technically rap if he so chose to do so. Right. But he's very typically working with these very strange kind of avant-garde beats, and he does what he calls based freestyle. So there's this kind of like when people hear it. It's the same, that's the same energy 
maybe that I th- I don't know if maybe runs screaming. I think they might. It, there's a lot more uh, sort of casual snobbish dismissal instead of like, ugh, you know, that's terrible. Oh, I, like, yeah, when Caesar was dismissed, like unbelievable, you know, right, right, throughout his entire life, right, and, and it's he like, lived to be ninety. Oh Jesus, and, it's, <laughs> and he just kept going. That's so inspiring too, though, because Lil B is like very similar in that way, where to be so to know that there are probably 500,000 people who hate your guts, right? Because of this thing that you've chosen to do uh, and to keep going has to be some kind of me- mental fortitude that I don't have. But to kind of like just, just wrap that up on my end, it's, it's because he knows technically what he's doing and he understands music. And it's once you get to that point, you're allowed to sort of like go back and break the rules. And sometimes I think to some people there's, they can't tell the difference between the amateur and the professional who's like come out the other side. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. 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 You know, Cecil Taylor had a great quote about, he said, uh, musicians are many, but people who change the urgency and the size of the music as we know it are few. Hmm. And to me, Cecil seeing him was one of these people who changed the urgency and the size of what art could do. 